Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 26. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when, Jesus, when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. On one of these days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. I know that's a long passage, uh, and we wanted to read the whole thing because of what we're trying to do this morning is to see God's full salvation in Jesus Christ, and all three of those parables are there together, so thank you for um, bearing with uh, some of the long readings this morning. 
Uh, we are in a, a series on the Gospel of Luke, making our way through. We've come to chapter 5. You will remember Luke is writing this gospel to the most excellent Theophilus. Chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 3. It's probably a person of rank, some wealthy benefactor who had commissioned this gospel because he was interested in knowing more about Jesus. So Luke is writing to help this person and us to understand who Jesus was and what he came to do and what the implications of his life and his work are for our lives. And the real substance of his report begins here. So we're on a fast track now beginning in chapter 5. Everything up to this point has been background information. The introduction is now over. Now he's moving into the meat of his material. And he begins here in chapter 5 with a trio of miracles. The catch of the fish in verses 1 through 11. Then the healing of the leper in verses 12 through 16. And then lastly the healing of the paralytic in verses 17 through 26. I'm going to attempt to take all three of them together this morning. Because Luke groups them together. And I think he does this to show us how all all comprehensive the salvation that Jesus brings really is. It transforms our relationships, excuse me, it transforms our relationship to ourselves. It transforms our relationships with one another. And ultimately, most importantly, it can do those things because it transforms our relationship with God himself. So there's psychological and emotional, then also sociological, relational, and ultimately spiritual transformation that's promised to us or that's shown to us here in this text. And those are the three points uh, of your outline there, if you have the outline in front of you. When I talk about gospel identity, I mean how the gospel of Jesus Christ can come inside and transform you psychologically, emotionally. When I talk about gospel community, I mean how the, how the power of the gospel can begin to transform the way we relate to one another and form us into a unique kind of community of people. And then thirdly, when I say gospel theology, I mean how the gospel really is the solution to our greatest need which is that we would be reconciled to God and have our sins forgiven. So those are the three points of our outline this morning. If you want to follow along with me, uh, please do. And let's just start with this idea of gospel identity and the story of Peter uh, on the lake of Gisenaret here. Uh, Psychological transformation, okay? So part of the fallout of sin is psychological and emotional alienation and breakdown. If you remember in the Genesis story, when Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they were naked and they felt shame, we're told. And they tried, in the midst of their shame, to sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. Now, that's a description in Genesis of a certain psychology. The scripture says, to put it kind of in just a phrase, that it's a picture of how our hearts condemn us. That we are often filled with a deep sense of of being wrong. That we're wrong. That we're not okay. That something is wrong with us. And part of what Jesus came to do, then, is to heal us of this psychology, to heal us emotionally and psychologically. And we really see this in the first story in Luke chapter 5, in this miraculous catch. Okay, This is Peter's conversion experience. I mean, look at verse 8. In verse 8, Luke says, When Simon Peter saw it, okay, that's the only place, this is a neat little tidbit, it's the only place in this entire gospel where he's called Simon Peter. Before chapter 5, verse 8, he is always referred to as Simon. After... Luke 5.8, he's always referred to as Peter. But here in this moment, he's Simon Peter. And what Luke, it's, it's a way of Luke showing what a radical experience this was, a life-changing experience for Peter. There's a transformation of his identity going on in this encounter between Peter and Jesus that will leave him forever changed. He came into it as Simon. He goes out the other side of it as Peter. 
And that's the first thing that we learn about Jesus' salvation, that it produces this kind of transformation of identity. It doesn't just forgive you of your sins and get you a little closer to God. A genuine encounter with the risen Lord Jesus completely reconstructs your psychology and your very identity. And it really happens in a number of stages that we see here happening to Peter. So let's kind of follow along in the story, if you would. The first thing that happens in the first stage is what I'm going to just call, I could use a number of different words, but I just settle on the word honesty. That is, the first thing that happens in this kind of experience is you finally begin to see yourself for who you really are, not as you'd like to imagine yourself to be. You get a worse view of yourself. You come to a realization and an admission, even, of just how flawed you really are. That's what happens to Peter. Look at what happens. Jesus is unveiled to him. He lets out the boat as Jesus commands. They drop the nets. They haul in this great haul of fish. And he finally begins to see Jesus for who he really is. And, and, and in the power that he experiences there in this miraculous catch, look at what his response is. He says to him, depart from me. Uh, for I am a sinful man. See, the first step, the first step is the end of, of denial. All of your illusions, all of your denial, all of your defensiveness and deflection, all of the ways you're repressing what's wrong with you and refusing to deal with the truth. And, and you finally come to the, pl- the place where you're absolutely honest before the Lord and other people. I am a sinful man, Peter says. You don't want to have anything to do with me. I mean, it's echoed in other places in the scripture, in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah has a similar experience, the prophet Isaiah, you might remember what his response is. And he, said, he says, woe is me, I'm lost. Or woe is me, I'm undone, some of the translations say. That's the way Isaiah puts it. And then in Job, which is probably the, the, another very similar experience. Job, when he comes face to face with the Lord, says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And so all of these experiences and others suggest that when you get close to the real God, the first thing is that it's very traumatic. At least at first. It usually produces a moment of sheer panic. Isaiah says, I'm lost. I'm undone. That literally, it literally means I'm falling apart. And Aldous Huxley, who was a complete pagan and, and atheist, wrote, because it's interesting to hear from a pagan about this, of his own experience with this. And here's, here's his description. He had an experience with with religion at one point in his life. And here's how he wrote about it. He says, The fear that I experienced was of being overwhelmed, of disintegrating under the pressure of a reality greater than me. He goes on to say, In theological language, this fear is due to the incompatibility between man's egoism and the divine purity, between man's self-aggravated separateness and the infinity of God. Now what he means is this. Huxley had an encounter, like Peter's encounter here, He said that what happened was, as he began to disintegrate, he began to realize that he had been wrong in all of his high opinions about himself. That his ego was wrong. That he wasn't nearly as strong and virtuous as he thought himself to be. He just didn't know it until he got close to the someone who was infinitely superior to him in every way. And that's what did it. And that's what happened to Peter here too. So it's a hard concept to grasp. So uh, I'll give you an illustration from my own life uh, this past week. I had a little mini experience of this on Sunday. A week ago today, we buried my grandfather. So by the time Monday came around, I was, um, I was tired, I was exhausted, and I really felt like I needed the day off. But the wonder of God's providence, my kids just happened to be out of school that day. And so I spent the day with them. 
but pretty begrudgingly. Not a whole lot of joy. Uh, But as I'm uh, capable of, I was still feeling pretty proud of myself at the end of the day, that I was able to push past my selfishness and be available. And then on Tuesday, I started to read the reading from Matthew 14, where Jesus uh, and CBR, this community Bible reading this past week, Matthew 14, Jesus gets word of John the Baptist's death. And it says that all he wanted to do was get away from the crowds like I wanted to on Monday mornings. Uh, he wanted to get away so he could be alone and he could grieve his friend that he had lost. But no matter where he went, the crowds followed him and wouldn't leave him alone. So he finally got on board a boat and sailed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But by the time he got to the other side of the sea, the crowd had already gathered there to meet him. Now, if you want to see a volcanic eruption, right, in me, in moments like this. But what I read there in Matthew 14 was, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. And then there's the series of miracles that happen in Matthew 14, but I didn't get past that one sentence. I just, I stopped and I said, that's the miracle. That he had compassion in in that moment of his own grief and pain. That is the the miracle that made all the other miracles in Matthew 14 possible. And and the moment I saw his compassion, what happened is, is I saw the depth of my own selfishness. And it stripped me naked. And it led me to confession and repentance. And that's what's happening to Peter. Peter's confronted with Jesus' power, and he ultimately realizes just how powerless he is. It strips him of all of his bravado and self-assurance. And we know, just for this one moment, because he goes right back into it later on, right? But for this one moment, he gets a real sense of who he really is before the awesome holiness of God. And so that's the first stage, is that you have this experience of, of, uh, of honesty. The second stage, though, is, is an affirmation that comes. You see, at the very moment that Peter confesses, I'm a sinner... You shouldn't have anything to do with me. God, go away from me, Jesus. At that moment, when he's feeling the absolute worst about himself that he's ever felt, he is also affirmed more deeply than he's ever been affirmed. Look at what Jesus says to him. Do you see that? He says, don't be afraid. Peter's scared to death. Get away from me. I, I'm, I'm sinful. You should, you should just vanquish me. And, and the Lord Jesus says, don't be afraid, Peter. Don't feel like this. And look what he says in verse 10. And then he says, from now on, you will be catching men. Here's what that means. Jesus is saying, Peter, I want you to follow me. I want you to help me in my mission. You're my man, Peter. I believe in you. I want you with me. I mean, that kind of affirmation. See, if you're new to Christianity, or if you're old to Christianity but new to our church, or new to the gospel, what we talk, how we talk about the gospel... Your past experience with Christianity probably went along one of two lines. Either you had an experience of what I would call hellfire and brimstone, God hates you version of Christianity, that made you feel really bad about yourself, or you may have come out of the current kind of seeker-friendly God is love version that doesn't talk about sin and works really hard not to offend anyone. And the first makes people very religious but terribly insecure. Moralism, which is what it really is, creates a very fragile psychology in people because what happens is they never get beyond this initial reaction that Peter has here. They never move beyond the fear. There's only the trauma without the affirmation. But the second makes people apathetic and too self-assured. It creates an entitlement mentality in them because it's all affirmation. All affirmation but without the trauma. But the true experience of the God of the Bible 
results in a particular psychology that is absolutely unique. An experience like Peter's here is marked by this, and that on the one hand, you see yourself as more wicked and sinful than you ever dared dream or imagine yourself to be, and yet at the same time, you know that you're more valued and loved and affirmed than you ever dared hope. At the same time, complete honesty and transparency and realism about your weaknesses and sins, and yet complete confidence and assurance of God's love all at the same time. That's the unique. That's the unique psychology of a person who's been changed by an encounter with God's grace in Jesus. And that's, uh, that's why, uh, for, just for an example, the superiority complex that so many people who call themselves Christians live with makes no sense. This is going to sound harsh, what I have to say. I'm, 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 we may need to come behind this and fill this out a little bit, but a person who's had a genuine encounter with Jesus has ha- is a person that, by definition, has had their ego mortally wounded as a part of that experience. That's what happens to Peter. His ego is mortally wounded. And there's an incompatibility. Remember what Huxley said? An incompatibility between egotism and God's holiness. And so this superiority complex that people can live with, that I can live with, it, it, it means at some level that, that they've never come, you know, most people have never come to that moment of honesty and nakedness where all you can say before God is, I'm a sinner. Get away from me. But there's also a lot of people who call themselves Christians who suffer from an inferiority complex. No matter what they do, they can't quite shake the guilt. They feel condemned all the time, and it's because they've never gone through to the second stage. They've, they're not resting in God's love for them. And so there's no, in, in one sense, there's no such thing as a Christian with a superiority complex. You can't be... You can't call yourself a Christian and look down on people. You can speak the truth to people, but you can't look down on people. There's no such thing as a Christian, a Christian with an inferiority complex either in, in one sense. It's a completely unique, beautiful psychology and sense of emotional reality that the gospel produces. But there's a third stage before we move on uh, to the next point. And the third stage is, is first there's this moment of honesty in Peter... Then there's, a, then there's an affirmation that comes. And then the third stage is there's a commitment. The story ends with this simple phrase in verse 11. They left everything and followed him. And this was the greatest catch. You know, Peter here experiences something he's never experienced in all of his life. It's the greatest catch he's ever had. He's a professional fisherman. And, and there was more money on the beach this day than ever, that he had ever seen in his entire life. And that, isn't, it, isn't it amazing? That's the day. And in fact, Jesus orchestrated this. And that's the day when he comes to him and says, I want you to walk away from all of it. And he does. Now when Jesus Christ comes into your life, he affects every part of your life. And what it means for you to become a Christian and follow him is that he becomes the priority and your relationship with him becomes the most important thing in your life in every area. And what the Bible teaches is is that very thing, when you can get yourself to that place... That is, is, is the freedom that we so long for. I mean, how can Peter just walk away? Because he's free. Have you ever noticed how many surnames, particularly English surnames, uh, are also jobs? I thought of some people in our church. Baker, Fisher, even Skipper, right? Carpenter, Marshall, Smith, and the reason is because at one time the person would have been known as David the Smith. And then it just got changed over time to become David Smith. 
And so one of the major components in who you are is what you do. It's your job. It's the main part of your self-identity. If what, and it, but, but see, if what you do or the money that you make or whatever it might be, if, if that becomes the main way that you get a sense of self, then what happens is, is it makes you a slave. You won't be able to put it down. You'll, you, you'll never be able to walk away. You won't be able to put it down at night or on the weekends or on vacations. You won't be able to put it down for the sake of your family. You'll be a slave to it unless, unless and only if there's another kind of fishing beyond the fishing that Peter has been doing here. And that's what Jesus introduces him to. Jesus says to the fisherman, Peter, from now on you will be catching men. He says there's a work. Beyond your work, there's a mission beyond your personal mission. And if you give yourself to that, if, if you come and you follow me, then your work won't consume you. You'll be, you'll be able to put it down. You'll be able to walk away. You'll find a joy and a sense of meaning and purpose that will fill you. And actually, it will loosen your grip on the other things in your life. And you'll have a new capacity in the wake of that to enjoy them. You'll be free. You'll be free because you'll have all of the priorities in your life in the right order. That is what the gospel can do in us. It can heal us like that, psychologically and emotionally. But second, not only do we see psychological transformation, we also see that Jesus' gospel brings sociological transformation as well, the gospel community. Okay, not only do you begin to see personal, emotional, psychological change, but, but as you know, what, what Luke is claiming of Jesus is that in his kingdom, because of his work, we can begin to see our relationships begin to change as well. And you remember... In the Genesis account, Adam and Eve not only experienced emotional and psychological alienation, they also experienced alienation from one another rather quickly. One minute, they're naked with one another and felt no shame. Right? The very next, they're ducking behind bushes and trying to hide from one another. And then, when they get confronted, they start to point fingers at each other and say, it's her fault, it's his fault, and looking for somebody desperately to blame And so part of what Jesus has come to do is to heal our relationships with one another. And we see this in the second parable in the healing of the leper in verses 12 through 16. You see, the thing about this story is the physical healing is not the main point. Luke says in verse 12 that this man is full of leprosy. But if you have a Bible, a Bible is one of these things right here. I'm just kidding. Not the little sheet that we give you. I hope we're not like robbing people of the joy of having their Bible out in front of them. But in your Bible, if you look there, there's a note, typically, particularly if you have an ESV. And um, see, now I feel bad about saying that, and I've lost my place in my notes. (laughs) Dang. I really have no idea where I am. Where am I? Here we go. If you look in your Bible, because all of you looked at me, and and, never mind. We'll keep going. (laughs) See, I'm going to get red-faced now, too. If you look at verse 12 at the word leprosy or leper, uh, you'll see a footnote saying that the word can mean any number of infectious skin conditions. And so to be a leper didn't describe necessarily a medical condition. It described the person's place in the community. A leper was, for whatever reason, a person who had become a social outcast. They were not allowed in the major cities for fear that their disease would spread to others. According to the Jewish ceremonial law, they were declared unclean, which literally meant, literally they had to present themselves, think, just think about this for just one minute, will you? They had to go before the priest and present themselves to him, and he literally would kind of take a step back away from them because he was afraid, and he would put his hand up and he would say, you are unclean, get out. I mean, can you imagine how fracturing that would be for a person? And then they were cast out. 
And what happened, they, they eventually, this eventually had the effect of labeling lepers as sinners who deserved to be shunned. So lepers became the victim of other people's self-righteousness. So what we learn is the real longing of this man's heart is for healing, but even beyond the healing is for relationships. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And hidden in that request is not only the longing to be free of his disease, but also to be welcomed back into the community. And Jesus' response is stunning. Jesus, verse 13, stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Now, now think about this for a minute. He could have healed him without a, with a word. He did that often with people. He could have healed him with a word, but Jesus took the time. He stretched out his hand, and he touched him. And actually, this is something that, that Luke emphasizes in his gospel. In chapter 7, verse 14, and 13, 13, and 18, 15, and on, that Jesus goes around touching people. How powerful for this man. I mean, there are dozens of studies that prove that physical touch and affection is one of the most basic needs that infants have. And that a lack of touch and affection is linked to failure to thrive and even death. This man has not felt human touch, and we don't know how long. For who knows how long? Everywhere he went, people would draw back away from him, go to the other side of the road. But here, he finally meets the one who does not shy away, who doesn't backpedal, but who moves out to come near to him and puts his hands on him and says, I will be clean. He's concerned with more than just healing his leprosy. Jesus wants to heal this man's heart. He wants to bring him into the community. That's why he says, go show yourself to the priest, verse 14. He wants him to go through all that he has to do to be brought back into the community. And this is really remarkable. I mean, it's really remarkable. See, the general assumption would have been that by touching him, Jesus had become unclean. That's why everybody else stayed so far away. But that's not what happened at all. By touching him, Jesus did not become unclean. Instead, when Jesus touched him, that leprous man became clean. Now, what does it mean for us and how we do community? Well, see, if you're religious... I mean, if we're a community based upon the principle of religion, that is, if we believe that God loves us because we're clean, if you believe God loves you because you're clean, then you have to do everything you can to stay away from people who are unclean so that you don't become untainted. But if you know that your standing with God isn't based upon how clean you are, if salvation really is by grace, then you can reach out to people who are unclean without being afraid of becoming unclean yourself. You can be risky with grace. You can really be patient with people who are struggling with sin and still invite them in to be a part of things. I mean, the practice of hospitality may even prove to be transformative in their life. Modern-day lepers. And I think that's the teaching of the healing of this leper, that the church is the only community on the face of the earth based upon what every single one of us have in common. We are all sinners. And therefore, all recovering sinners are welcome. And that's the kind of space that we need to inhabit to become who we're meant to be. The space to struggle, to express our doubts and our questions, and to still be given room. So you see, there's a, there's a powerful sense of gospel transformation of my psychology and my emotional reality. There's a powerful expression of how the gospel can create us into a certain type of community that that creates sociological and relational well-being in people. But the last thing is, 
is that we see all these two things really depend upon the last one, and that is that there's a the promise of spiritual transformation here as well. You see, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, not only do they hide from one another, but they hide from God because in their sin they've become alienated from Him and need to be restored. And we see this restoration spiritually in the healing of the paralytic. Now, in this story, beginning in verses 17 through going through 26, there's a man who has, uh, is a paralytic. He can't walk. And his friends have heard that Jesus is in town, and so they put him on a cot. They take him to the, to the house where Jesus is teaching. They can't get in for the crowd, so they figure out a way to get him up on the roof. They dig a hole in the roof. They let him down through the roof, plop him down right in front of Jesus, as, as if to say, we're not going to let you leave until you deal with our friend. Jesus looks at the man after all their trouble, and he says a, a startling thing, verse 20. He says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Okay, this, of course, is not why they went to all this trouble. They wanted Jesus to heal his paralysis, but Jesus forgives his sins. Now, what does that mean? See, one of our, one, our most fundamental problem, here's, here's really what this story's teaching us, is that our f- most fundamental problem, the problem behind every other problem, is that we're alienated from God. That's the problem. We're alienated from God. And, and, and just so think about this in a number of different ways. This affects the way you think about your life. We are so tempted to think that the problem with our lives is circumstantial, and it never is. If I could just get a better job, or if I could just get a different house, a different set of circumstances, then everything would be okay. <laughs> but it won't be. Because this, that we think the solution to our discontent is a change of circumstances, but what this story teaches is that my unhappiness, my problem, uh, and it, it pains me to say, my problem is not my in-laws, it's not my job, it's not that I have no job, it's not if only I find, could find a new group of friends, then I wouldn't be so lonely. Not to disregard any of those things is important, but the real problem, the problem that is, I'm suffering from the most is my rebellious heart. My sin and my selfishness. And this man who was brought to Jesus by his friends, his biggest problem wasn't that he couldn't walk. It was that he wasn't right with God. So Jesus breaks the ice by offering to meet his real need. It affects not only the way I think about my life, it affects the way I approach God. You see, a lot of us, we come to Jesus because we want him to fix our circumstances. There's something in our life that we're unhappy about. Uh, There's some kind of suffering or pain that we're having to go through that that we want to try Jesus out to see if he can help us out of it. If you're not a Christian or if you're you're here and you're you're investigating Christianity, I've got to say, be careful about this. Don't come to him because you think he will fix your circumstances because that's not his ultimate agenda. In fact, sometimes he keeps you in the circumstances you so desperately want him to change because he's got a better agenda. He's changing you. And were he to do the things you wanted him to do, it would short-circuit what he's trying to do in you. He's come to deal with your sin. So when he does that, That's good news. When he leaves you in the painful thing that you're so desperate for him to bring you out of because he's making you holy in the middle of it, that is good news. He's loving you by keeping you there. But it also affects the way you shepherd your own heart and also those that you love. If somebody asks you, somebody asks you, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Do you, do you ask for help with your circumstances or do you ask for help with, with your sin? In your community groups, we were talking about this around the tables, the pastors the other day, and one of the pastors just said something about the community groups in their church that was really helpful. 
He just said, you know, in your community groups, does the conversation ever go beyond what's happening in the circumstances in your life to the deep heart issues that you're struggling with? Are you helping one another battle sin? See, are you put right with God through Jesus Christ? That's the key to everything. And it's only when you're spiritually put right. And we all have other stuff that we want him to help us with, right? But none of those things are like this. Until you get this right, none of the other stuff can be right. It's the, if the real problem, see, if the problem behind every problem is that we're alienated from God, if that is the cause for our psychological and emotional alienation and our, and our relational alienation from one another, then our only hope for real change is the work that Jesus has come to do for us and the work he continues to do in us by the power of his Holy Spirit. If sin is the problem, then political and sociological approaches to the solution that refuse to acknowledge and address sin will ultimately prove ineffective. They won't work. But a change in circumstances won't solve anything either. That's, that's naive. Jesus says in verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. Sin is the real problem. And so a solution, a savior that can say, rise and walk, but can't deal with our sin doesn't offer a real solution. Our hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus went to the cross, he was nailed immobile to the wood so that this immobile man could walk again. Jesus was shunned by his own people, by his friends, and even by God himself. He became unclean so that this leper could be made clean. That's the gospel. Because Jesus has dealt with our sin on the cross where he died, condemned in our place, bearing the guilt of our sins upon himself. Because he has satisfied the demands of God's justice, he can not only turn to us and say, your sins are forgiven, but he can also turn to us and say, rise and walk. In a similar section in Matthew's Gospel, as he is reporting this same, these same groups of miracles, he stops to say, uh, uh, just a little aside, as Matthew is wont to do in his Gospel, he says, this all... All of these miracles that Jesus is doing, these healings, this all was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that he took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. And it's a reference to Isaiah 53 in the picture of the Messiah as a suffering servant. Matthew understood that on the cross, Jesus was going to deal with sin in such a way that out of his death would flow life, that he would be crushed so that we might be healed. And ultimately, out of this great saving work of Jesus Christ will come a healing that will extend not just to our hearts, but also to our minds and our bodies and to our relationships with one another and eventually to the whole creation until he is done with the work of making all things new. Now, let me ask one question, question to close, and that is, if this is really what God <laughs> is doing in Jesus Christ, all of these things that Luke has to say and report about here, then the question we need to ask is, what activates his power uh, in our lives? What is it that activates his power uh, in us, to begin to do these things in us. And the answer is surprising. If you, if, again, if you have a Bible and you want to look, I didn't print it for you because we had read enough, quite honestly, but in the very next passage uh, is the calling of Matthew, of Levi. And at the very end of his dealing with Levi, Jesus has this phrase at the bottom where he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so the, 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 the unmistakable teaching of that text, at the very end of these three parables, is, is that the thing that activates the power of Jesus that we see on display here in each of our lives is our need. 
I have not come to call the righteous but sinners, not those who have it all together, but those who are a mess and who know they need help. Do you need spiritual healing? Is your heart heavy with the weight of your sins? Jesus has come for sinners. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him, we just sang. Do you need sociological healing? Are you lonely? Do you feel like an outcast? Jesus, ready, stands to save you full of pity, love, and power. Do you need to be healed emotionally? Are your priorities all out of order? Are you being driven along by desires you can't seem to overcome? Bring your need to him. That's the essence of faith. That's the essence of faith. Faith is bringing your need to him because you know he's the one that can ultimately do something about it. And when you don't have the faith to do it on your own, ask God to give you friends like the friends of of this paralytic. You see, the church is a group of people who take one another by the hand and lead one another to Jesus. And that's something that can happen even in the last few moments of our service. And so even as we sing uh, in these last moments, uh, let's pray. Uh, that's exactly what would happen in our hearts. Can we pray with me? So, Father, as we come now to yet again sing, and in singing tomorrow, we'll let your, at the mystery of your grace towards us and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would you take us by the hand, Holy Spirit, lead us to Jesus that we might bring our need to him so that he might heal us. Would you give us grace to have a moment of sheer honesty where we stand before you and say, I'm a sinner, depart from me, Lord, so that we might hear you come right behind that to say, no, I love you, I want you with me, so that we might be changed into the kind of people that you so desperately desire for us to be, a people with a sturdy enough sense of self, uh, with, a, with the emotional wealth and the capacity inside that we can give uh, away our lives, a life of radical service and love to other people. Would you come and would you heal us in our relationships with one another that we might be a welcoming community of people who open our arms and embrace the poor and the needy and the the doubting and the confused and the harassed and the helpless and enfold them in that we might lovingly care for them. And would you come in these moments and would you remind us of the truth that if we put our faith in you, Lord Jesus, our sins have been forgiven. And you would say to us, rise and walk. There's so many ways, so many of us need to hear those words. And so would you come and speak them over us now and give us eyes to see and ears to hear as you do so that we might truly be changed and that you might be glorified in us. We pray for your sake. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. And so the promise of this benediction, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, belongs to you. It's the promise of his power and his provision and his presence to go with you wherever he sends you. Uh, to begin to do the things that he, uh, that he was doing here in Luke chapter 5, even as uh, he sends you to finish his mission. So receive the, the promise of these words uh, by faith. Let them nourish your hearts in faith to him. Uh, here are the words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. <laughs>